Hey, this is Colin Keeley here. And this is Brent Sanders. And we are the co-founders of Avocado, an audio publishing platform. So one thing we've got quite a number of questions on is like, how do you reach creators early on? And how have we done it successfully with a few different businesses in the past? And like, how do you get those early customers? And so it's Brent's idea today to talk about cold emailing a little bit and kind of our strategy around that. Yeah, because I mean, that's been like the number one driver for getting people on the platform. So starting with creators, you know, we were able to get quite a few people interested from the get-go, even before we really had any product, build up a, a, a nice amount of interest in order to, to validate some of the decisions we made. And so I, I would highly recommend, I really wouldn't start a business another way. I think it's the only way. I mean, there was this idea back in the day, and maybe not so far back that, you know, oh, throw up a landing page, throw some spend at it and see, you know, that's your first step in order to kind of test the waters for a given business. But I really, getting real people and engaging with them uh, is probably a better benchmark. I mean, it, it depends on the business, of course, but, you know, having a wait list, having some people ready to sign up and list their courses was a, a really important step for us to get this business out the door. Cold emailing, I think is kind of like scary to people and they don't really understand what it all entails, but it's kind of wild that it even exists, like the targeting involved. So it doesn't really matter who you, if you're trying to reach creators, you're trying to reach CEOs, CFOs, like certain size companies, you could build up a lead list and reach exactly the person you're trying to reach and get in front of them, assuming you have you know, a good subject line and good deliverability and all that stuff. And kind of at scale with VAs and assistants and like personalizing things. So I would say it doesn't work for all businesses. It's only the ones that we've been working on. It doesn't work for like direct consumer. I don't think it really makes sense to like the, the value of the customer is not really there. Like if I were to scrape everyone's like Instagram followers and try to find all their emails, it would probably cost me like 50 cents to a dollar to get each of their emails. And I am not sure that actually makes any sense at scale. For that yeah. I, I think, especially with a consumer product, like, you know, you're not really sure where they're at in their journey. I guess it's, it really is the same for anything, but it's it, to your point, the payoff might not be there. I've never really actually heard of anybody doing that. Although, you know, I think it's important that we delineate cold emailing from spamming. Cause I think that's where, you know, it's hard to know the difference in some ways. So like, let's be honest, you're, you're emailing somebody unprompted, you're offering a service or a product, you're uh, advertising in a way. Um, I mean, I, to me, it's, it's if you can add value, but that's subjective. So it's like, how do you differentiate what's spam and what's cold? Email? Uh, I looked into this because legally there has to be a definition, right? Of what spam is. Right. And the distinction is if you personalize it, it's not considered spam. So if it's like, <laughs> hey, hey, Brent, you know, I saw you're the, the CEO of this company. Um, and especially if you, you try to add an extra line of like always open with a compliment, especially if you're reaching out to these powerful people and they, if there's any hint that it's just a spam email and it's not like, hey, Brent, congrats on, you know, finishing this marathon. I really love this cold email you wrote or something like that. Um, it, it's just immediately deleted and could be properly called spam. And, you know, I don't know if legally you're in the right with that kind of right. thing. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I would, I, I do think that there's something to warming up cold email. Uh, and we've been talking about this recently. It's like, is there value in almost targeting people 
a couple layers ahead of the email because like that's your the inbox is intimate although it can easily be skipped spammed deleted it's really not you know a precious location on someone's you know inbox but like one thought that we've you know thrown around is to get some content on linkedin and target people friend you know link in with them on link what is the thing you connect with them on linkedin we connect on linkedin that's so yeah. you connect with them on linkedin you link in with them uh and then you know maybe pay for some promoted traffic to an article that's related to your pitch and then a week later then send the cold email you've added some context they've seen the name they've you know, if they've accepted your invite, which it seems like most people do. I don't know. Are you a accept all on LinkedIn? Or are you, are you um, discerning? I am not. Uh, so I think the only, this isn't for like outbound sales in any sense, but the only way to retain value in LinkedIn as like an individual is only accept people that you actually know. So like, if you're just trying to promote stuff outwardly, you could accept everyone and maybe more eyeballs see your content. But if you want to know like, who you know and who knows like secondary connections and be useful. I think you want to just, you know, keep it uh, like a tighter knit group. That's a challenge. That's, I mean, the amount of invites I get to connect, which are 99% of people selling products or services and are looking at me as, you know, I historically haven't kept my, my profile up to date, but um, you know, it's all this advertisement for building a development team. That's always, you know, the number one thing is, can I get 15 minutes of your time to, you know, see about outsourcing your development service, which, you know, I'm not interested at all or ever have been really, but let's talk about that. Going back to the, the subject line, it's like, what, what works, what doesn't when filling in these emails? Cause they, A, they can't be long. You can't put a paragraph of text in here, but more so- importantly, the subject lines, like the, the first thing. Yeah, I, I should. I have a bunch of notes on this, but my favorites are basically just quick question, like all lowercase. Looks pretty informal. People just generally open those, and that historically has always been the best uh, subject line. And then you should see open rates around sixty percent, and then that like gets you in the door, and you got to convert people after the fact. But besides that one, often I'll just use no subject line, which stands out in people's inboxes and it's like kind of weird. And normally it's pretty informal. Like it's a friend sending you something. So those get opened at a really high rate or some variation of like quick question for the first name for whoever you're emailing idea for you or a quick question about your company. So like quick question about avocado or some variation of that. And those all have had really high success rates for me and like from a variety of different companies. I think one one thing that I'm a believer in is is like what is something of value that you can offer within like that first sentence, and it's really really hard to do because usually you don't know if there's a fit or you're making some fantastical claim that doesn't seem genuine, right? I I focus on big part of how I operate and how I sell specifically is around authenticity. Like that's the the thing I'm hanging my sort of whole sales strategy around, which. <laughs> Here may not be the, the best <laughs> thing, but leading off with a cold email, it you're almost starting on the wrong foot. So it's like, what are ways to, uh, and I, I actually genuinely don't know because you usually end up writing these emails and I, you know, there's a reason I don't typically do it because it's like, I don't know what to, you know, how do you offer something without feeling like, uh, you know, maybe skeezy, spammy, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, I think, so the big thing is like, 
just getting their attention and showing that it's personalized and not a spam email, like right off the bat. So I often start with a compliment, like, Hey, loved your course on this. And, you know, I think it could go really well in audio or something like that. And then continue with like what I have to offer them basically, like some form of desire as the next step. Um, and then what I've been working with in China, it's easy to fire off these emails, but it's hard to do it at scale. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of research on my end to like craft a good cold email. So I'm trying to build up these processes of like, how can I pass this off onto a VA? And it's pretty hard, but I think I've developed like a pretty solid system. And it, it, it strikes me that this would all be pretty valuable to share more wildly, which is why I had this widely, which is why I had this idea for an audio course around cold emailing. Hmm. There you go. Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of kind that you do not need a screen for my God, like uh, to be able to go on a walk and listen to that would be really helpful. And I think it's, I'm just trying to think of a situation. There hasn't been a single business that I've worked on in the last five years that hasn't had a cold email or like an email strategy. I mean, it's just like such a cornerstone of, of growth strategies right now. Yeah, that would be great. And like, we have benchmarks around this. We have like best practices in place. So we've done this with like Paro. Um, Paro is like an outsource CFO or book bookkeeping uh, managed marketplace, I guess you'd call it. And they have a monster system for a cold outbound that has been very successful for them. And then we did that with Finance Fuel, which is like an invoice factoring company. We kind of learned all this stuff along the way. We have all these kind of nice docs in place around it, but we haven't really shared it. I wrote up a nice blog post about it. And I was like, this is going to be kind of customer service hell. I don't want to do this. I want it to be <laughs> <laughs> like evergreen. It's always going to be changing. It's always going to be breaking. But I think if I just stick to more of the theory of it and refer out to other services and talk about what's worked for me in the past and what processes I've used in the past, I think that would be valuable for folks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely like while we're on it uh, for avocado, what has been like, it's my, what has been the, the success rate? Cause it's my impression that like 90% of our creators came from these cold email outreach campaigns. Uh, yeah. So I don't have the numbers in front of me. I could bring them up. We use close as our CRM and also it like runs our drip campaigns. It is our whole like outbound emailing machine. There's a bunch of other good ones. It just kind of happens to be the one we fell on. Um, so open rates, I would say around 60%. Um, from there, maybe like, I'm trying to think 20% were replying to my email. Okay. And then once I got people on the phone, I had like a probably 50% success rate about yeah. to getting them to like uploading their content. It was really, really high. Um, but I, that was in our old model where I was able to kind of offer them more money off their existing content, which is a little bit of an easier sell. But so now we have this new one where it's like the Shopify or teachable model effectively where it's like build your audio product business with us. And I, I, cold emailing is still super successful, but I wonder if these people do need more warming up, more like supportive content to be like, hey, we are a business in a box and this is how you build your little creator empire with us. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think we were marketing largely to people that were already operating these businesses and just add a channel on. And we also optimize the tech to, take video, convert it to audio. So it was actually super easy for them to take their existing assets and boom, you have an audio course and you're, you're in business and you're getting listens. But 
um, you know, and across other businesses where it's like, hey, there, there's actually, you know, engaging with a partner, engaging with a, a new vendor, like it all requires a bunch of work. And I guess that's every business's job to make that as seamless as possible and, and automate that as much as you can, right? So onboarding is really easy for your new clients and you don't have to have a kickoff call that involves, you know, giving access to things and setting up things for your, your clients or your, your target, if you want to use that in sales terms. But, um, you know, I think that's, that's one thing we can kind of look at with emails. Like if you can get their intent, if, I, I don't know how many uh, people that we started a conversation with and then fall off. And like, at least you then have a gauge of like, okay, these people were interested in the headline and like, okay, we couldn't get them over the hump, but you can come back to them if we have you know, maybe a new feature that fits what they were going after or just the ability to kind of continue coming back to them. I mean, I think there's something to the traceability or trackability of all of it that within close is is super helpful. But I should say I'm not the, I have spent barely any time inside close, um, but that does seem to be the platform that most companies we've worked on tend to use. Yeah, and I think that's a huge part is like, so sending these cold emails have, you get some success rate from that first one, but it just progressively increases as you continue to contact them. So like setting up drip campaigns is enormously important where you continue to follow up with these people. And it's something I have not been great at. Like I'll set up a drip campaign, I'll email them maybe three times. And then I kind of forget about them, which isn't the way to do it. I should add them to some like recurring newsletter or something like that as we keep pushing new product features, I should be updating them. And that was something I had on the, like the docket this week is to set that in place better. But the one thing I've struggled with with clothes is I like to customize these emails before I fire them out, but you can't do that with drip campaigns or at least you couldn't do that easily. So I had to create a custom field for each lead and it's like a compliment section. And so that first oh. line is like a, it's in their bio basically the first line of that first email. So you have like Colin is the first name, Keely's the last name. And then you have a field that's like, here's the compliment for this, this person. Yeah. And then you embed that as the first line in the first email that goes out to them. Nice. But yeah, setting this all up properly. It's like easy with a VA to get all these fields or some of the fields. And then you forget about some and you have to go back and clean it all up. So setting everything properly, setting up everything properly and closes kind of a big task and important to get right initially. Also, it quickly becomes a mess. So playing devil's advocate, I, you know, in the first business that I, I ran and, and built and uh, it was a development agency. So I was talking about on LinkedIn, I would get all these, I still get all, you know, a, a Ukrainian development team that's, Hey, we want to, you know, outsource beer offshore development team and augment your team and, you know, all, the, all these great things. So I, but I never, went down this path of cold emailing because I thought it would attract bad clients, right? Like I thought it was, I mean, number one, I kind of have a, an allergy to sales to a certain extent around that business, especially because it was like so intimate in the sense that you had, you know, it's different from avocado. It's not a product, it's a service and you're going to work hand in hand with these people and you didn't want to attract crazies and you wanted to be very selective is that, but I still wanted a larger top of funnel. So I never did this and never did cold calling. That was recommended to me is to, you know, work your way through phone trees at companies and, you know, get in front of the right person and try to pitch them on setting up a meeting. But, you know, I, I understand some businesses like B2C may not be great fits for cold emailing, but is there a way to, 
I mean, I guess it's just meant to be a numbers game. Is there a way to improve this sort of quality of the people? Or is that just a matter of like the list that you, you feed in sort of garbage in, garbage out? Yeah. So you are creating who you're targeting. You're creating those lead lists. So it is, and then you're vetting them and like validating email lists is a whole big process where you have different cutoffs and that kind of thing. But I would say it's just kind of up to you who you're targeting. If you're targeting crap, you're probably going to get crap. And then it's just, I would say a numbers game. So I don't know if you, you're running a service, something like that. Finance fuel is somewhat similar. Paro is somewhat similar. You probably have like sending a hundred emails, 60% get opened. You probably end up hopefully with like five phone calls. And then in the phone calls, you could see whether they're worth you know moving down the line or not. But that is kind of the, the make or break point then. But the good news is, is it's a numbers game. So you can start with, you know, to, especially if you have a VA and it sounds like you can boil this down to a per lead price. And if you know, you know, as a development agency or any of these agency service providers, it's like these deals are worth a lot, right? You, they're likely worth twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 per deal, uh, maybe even more. And so to say like, Hey, let's start with 5,000, 10,000 leads and work our way down. And, you know, will you find something in there? Cause otherwise you know, you're not really as a business owner, you're as a business owner, you are not really in control of your destiny. You're only getting referrals, which is going to limit the, your ability to grow the, the business. Uh, yeah. And this is enormously powerful. I, I want to say most agencies and most services and like all mom and pop businesses don't do any variation of this. It mm -hmm. is just like based on referrals, based on getting your name out there. Um, so like proactive stuff is mostly neglected. That's why it's pretty easy for a young person to be like, Hey, I'll go, you know, run your, you know, growth or marketing for your company and get you leads and you'll pay me for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting. So, I mean, and as a corollary to that, like, are there other cold outreach methods besides email that are used? I remember, you know, a couple of years ago, SMS was really popular, but like that seems to be really held up by scammers. Like I really don't get text is so personal that it usually ends up being someone faking that they're chase bank trying to get into my bank account or put my pin in. Um, but are there like other mediums that are effective other than email? Uh, yeah. So I have like an enormous problem. I don't know if some of my friends like sign me up for like spammy <laughs> tech stuff. So <laughs> it thinks I'm named like Isabel and I keep like trying to lose 80 pounds in a week or something. Oh. <laughs> So it's really annoying. I get like three a day and there's no way that I could figure out how to stop it. So if anyone has any ideas, hit me up on Twitter. I could use the help, but um, yeah, other mediums. So LinkedIn, I would say is enormously powerful for similar reasons to like cold emailing is you could target people exactly and you sign up for sales navigator. And now there's somewhat gray market software that could sit on top of LinkedIn as like a CRM. Mm. So it could friend people or whatever it's called on LinkedIn and send them the appropriate messages, much like a drip campaign of sorts. So I haven't experimented with that too much, but I know people are doing it and there's some good services out there for it. And then you could do something similar on most other platforms. Like people do it on Twitter as well. And you get mm. the spam Twitter DMs. Um, I have not heard of that working as effectively, but back in the day, if you were like doing D2C companies, you would do, like Instagram, similar, like follow, unfollow from your competitors. Right. And you could send them messages. I, yeah. It, Facebook is pretty good at locking that stuff down. So I don't know if people are doing it all anymore. That was a, a number of years ago. Sure. Sure. 
I mean, as it relates to avocado, I mean, the, the growth strategy has really worked. I mean, in not to say we're, you know, we're crushing every metric, but in terms of like, that's been the, our number one way to get our creators and customers essentially, uh, you know, all in the uh, one word it's, that's been the, the main driver for our user base. And it's, um, I think a lot of people don't really know how it works or think that there's maybe some, some more mystery behind it when it's really like a couple of services that you can put together. Now, there is one thing that we've always done. I, I think I heard you mention is like warming up a domain. So we typically don't send, and I guess to the avocado emails, do those send from avocadoaudio.com? Uh, no, I'm just, I can't even remember. So what, what we end up doing is we buy like variations of avocado. Um, I can't even think it may be like get avocado or free avocado or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so you end up sending emails from that and people reply to that because eventually it's not spam, but people, enough people start flagging you as spam that you'll have deliverability issues and then you'll have to hop to another one. And it takes time to warm these up. So the way you warm them up is you could sign up for services that actually warm them up for you. It's basically like email engagement groups that will send emails back and forth and warm up a bunch of emails at the same time. But we just uh, send them to friends and get responses from friends. And then Google and everyone else flags it as like, this looks like a real person. And they're emailing at like a, a human level. So you also don't you know, immediately fire off a hundred cold emails to people. You do it slowly, like five a day, 10 a day, 20 a day, that kind of thing. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, so I guess that's the only magic. I mean, this is obviously a really deep subject and we're scratching the surface of it, but for companies that are in a similar state, you know, early stage companies that are looking to get their first sets of customers, like there doesn't seem to be a better way to, to at least like, again, play a numbers game and, and get them sort of in your net and having conversations. Yeah, it's it that one thing that, so we kind of paused, or at least I kind of paused on the outbound as we were improving the product a little bit and improving the site more importantly. So we have some nice, you know, actual photos are made from designer by the designer up on the site now. So I think it conveys what we do better. And I'd like to add more language about around our different features, but now I think it's in a good spot where it's worthwhile to start doing outbound again and actually bringing people on the platform. And, yeah. So, oh, but uh, one last thing that I feel yeah. like we're missing is like uh, the big success stories. Like I want one uh, audio course creator to make like a hundred thousand dollars in a month or a uh, you know, million dollars in a year or that kind of thing. And that's when you see these platforms really take off is when they have those big success stories that you could you know push widely to people. Yeah. I think it wasn't that Udemy that had that. That was like right when, if I remember correctly, the lore of that, that business was they had one promoter that, or sorry, one creator that they would promote out and that ended up making a ton of money. And then they really started seeing success. Yeah. They had a massive PR campaign. It was some professor. I can't remember what he was teaching, but they really like put marketing money behind them and pushed them to over the, the million dollar mark. And that was a big deal. Now awesome. I think some folks are making like well over $10 million in their courses. Wow. Wow. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Good for, I mean, this is like, this is definitely the model. I mean, we want to see people who are creating the content actually profiting from it. I mean, obviously Udemy is taking a take, but I don't know if that business would otherwise, you know, exist in the term, in the term of marketing, but it also, you know, you're, you're on this platform there's all these eyeballs. And I don't know if that's where the, the necessarily the, the future is going to be. I think people are going to normalize owning their own 
up and down the stack, like owning their own um, distribution channels. And I don't know. I, I think that it's an amazing story, but it strikes me as something that people are going to get more comfortable with. I wish I had a yep. better analog for this, but I just don't see it sticking around as a marketplace forever. So uh, the $10 million course creators, they're not using Udemy anymore. Like there's no way they're putting up, you know, 30% or whatever of their revenue for that kind of thing. They're using these just like dedicated creator tools, which there's a number of them for video courses. And we're the first one for audio. It's yeah. Creator tools are where the creator is the customer and they're not paying out a percentage of revenue necessarily, but it's more like a SaaS offering, which is kind of what we pivoted to. And I think clearly what it, the future is as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So we kind of covered cold emailing, uh, you know, you hired a VA. How is that going? It's going great. Yeah. So far, so good. I mean, I, I, we're catching up on, on a lot of the, the work that, you know, around transcription of the podcast and a bunch of other tasks that haven't been addressed in a long time. So we're, we're finally catching up on those tests and about to transition to the sort of next phase, which is in my mind, seeing uh, some writing samples, seeing how she can write. Um, but so far I've been really pleased and it's, we're definitely getting the value that we're paying. That's for sure. But I think the true test is going to be the writing, you know, the writing is a huge deal and it's, not trivial. It's not a, it's a very simple thing to do. So I'm anxious to see how that turns out. I think we'll, we'll get a sense for at the end of the week or by the end of the week and, and understand like what types of things she can write, what types of things maybe are, are best suited to, to her and her skill set. But, um, you know, so far we've built some, done some lead list generation, a whole bunch of stuff related to the website that you know, I, it's been on my list to do, but it's, it's more administrative. And then, um, yeah, this next thing is, is writing, which I'm interested to see, because that would be really powerful for us if we could get, you know, maybe an article a week done. Yeah. I, so I've used VAs for a number of years in like different capacities. I've never successfully done it with, you know, outsourced VAs, people outside America writing content like that. So yeah. I'd be, yeah, I'd be very curious to see how it goes. It'd be awesome if it works out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I would say as far as, you know, things related to avocado goes rolling out at least this next week, trying to get this more editor features rolled out to the platform. So you can customize in greater detail. You can customize your landing page, customize your, your actual course detail page. So optimistic to get that out this week. It's uh, been a little bit more involved than I thought it would be. I mean, this whole idea of creating the sort of WYSIWYG editor for avocado, um, which is, you know, WYSIWYG is short for what you see is what you get style editor, which oh, okay. you, know, these are, you, you they, said that this morning, I didn't know what it was. And I forgot to ask you what you meant. by Yeah. That. WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get. So it's, it's been around forever. I mean, it's like rich text editors and they're, they're, they're full of the same kind of problems. And the, the first problem is you don't want people to destroy their own pages. But to your point, you were saying if somebody wants to, it's their storefront, if they want to do something, that we, you know, didn't plan on, then let them go ahead and do it. And so uh, the floodgates will open soon with some new controls, being able to really customize what's on your page. And so a part of this is thinking through and rolling out like a, a theming system, a very light theming system, and then also like publishing drafts versus published versions, which I'm kind of modeling after Webflow, which is doesn't seem to be any versioning, doesn't seem to be overbuilt. It's like you can test it out and then you can publish it. And then once it's published, you can then draft again. But it doesn't seem like 
modeling after Webflow, it doesn't seem like there's a deep sort of undo chain or it's not really overbuilt to that extent. Uh, yeah, it's buried. So there are backups in Webflow. Um, I had to do this a few <laughs> months ago. And I think I pissed off all you guys that were like working on stuff, but it was easy to grab the sections that were uh, that were new and that people had worked on and recover them. But yeah, I, I couldn't fix it. I couldn't fix the thing in Webflow. So I just had to roll it back. Yeah. So uh, I think we're going to go with a very light sort of draft and then publish version. And then we'll see how that goes. And yeah, you can really go down a deep path once you start rolling these things. Because right now it's like you, we had more of a concept where you submitted your course for review and then it's live. And now it's, it's going to be very, very live in the sense that you can edit. And so we do need to separate like what's being written and in draft and what's actually live and published and kind of think through all that noise. But um, do you need, I mean, do you really need versions or could people just save it and they work on it and they save it? Like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing. It, it's like, it's draft and publish. There's the two modes and you can draft and that will only be visible to you. And then it'll be saved. Right. But it's not going to be published and published meaning that's what's publicly available. So everything kind of starts in a draft and then gets moved over to published. Hmm. Is it much yeah. more work? Like, do you think that's a necessary added step to be there? Yeah, I think you have to have some sort of draft. Otherwise, like think about when you first start, it's going to be blank, which so we, we already have a concept of like, is the course live? Is it published? So that's really just building on that. So it's like, let's say you publish once and then you make some changes and you want to see it. And it's like, until we, unless we have that draft publish field where there, there's this like a difference, you have to like be, you're making, you're going live every time. So it's like, you have to go live, save it, show it. So there's no way to kind of see what it looks like in context, unless there's those two fields, which uh, is in place, which is the most simple way that I can think of rolling that feature out. Right. It's like, we need, in my mind, you need that as a, a minimum, a minimum part of the feature because i think yeah. going down versions is just overkill i so i'm probably just do this wrong like when i've on worked on shopify sites or webflow sites i often just publish it like publish it live and see how it looks live and then i just don't <laughs> share where this is like the clear like non-technical person just push everything live and sort it out later um but and then i just see how it looks live and i just don't link to it and i don't throw any like marketing behind it so people aren't going to like stumble upon it in all likelihood i guess they occasionally do but i just generally yeah. publish everything live just preempting that hey how do i you know i made a change i want to get it back or something like that so i'm i'm expecting that people are going to want to uh, do that but the good news is, is that's it's not a ton of work the biggest piece of work really has been uh, integrating this we're using Quill, which is a popular open source library that allows for nice WYSIWYG editing. And it also is deals with, there's a whole bunch of insecurities that are introduced. Like you could put code into this form. You could put JavaScript. It can be arbitrarily run. There's a whole bunch of noise related to security but that you get to kind of sidestep. Um, but the big part is really just you know, we want to allow for images and so building an API so we store those images correctly. By default, Quill stores all the images in the database. So this is like in that text block, it converts an image. Let's say it's a 10 megabyte image. It'll convert it to text and save it with the rest of the text. And so um, loading up a page 
or loading, you know, just even loading that record in the database, you'll start to see like massive slowdowns. And you're wondering, why did the site get all slow? Why did the system, it's crashing, it's slowing down and it takes 30, 40 seconds to load a page. It's because somebody put something in, you know, they didn't know and you let them do it. So it's, it's on you as the developer. So splitting those out, getting those uploaded into S3, which is where those files belong and keeping everything kind of humming along. But it's kind of a, a a nice little feature, though. I think it'll open up the door for us to have these less prescriptive page, uh, pages that we have. Like right now, you you put in your your bio and your description and everything laid out. So um, I think this will be an interesting sort of bonus for our creators to have a little bit more granular control over how their their pages look. Yeah. I mean, as a creator, I'm pumped for this. So I've been throwing a little bit of Reddit ad traffic at the the my um, audio course and it really hasn't been converted and i think i'm just not able to have the freedom to like properly explain you know why you should buy this and people have been buying it from other sources like from my personal twitter following but i've i think i've had zero conversion so far from reddit so i'm excited to you know scale that up yeah i did see you have some conversions but yeah nothing from reddit at least that or the tracking is not working but i did test the tracking and it looks good it just doesn't seem like reddit's your uh it may not be your market or just the the offer in the ad might not be as compelling as the course is yeah reddit historically has hated me but <laughs> i am confident that this one is going to work uh i'll will it to work in time yeah that's all i got i think i look forward to seeing it you know i, I want to see this course on uh, or listen to this course on uh cold emailing because i do think it's it's a really important thing to kind of have in the toolbox uh, yeah, my goal is to get a rough draft out this week and uh, I'll start recording it. Uh, we'll see how long it takes me. Excellent. Um, but uh, until next week, uh, take care. Yeah, thanks for listening.